Hey, have you ever dreamt of building an app that impacts the daily lives of hundreds of thousands of people? Well, now it's your chance with Monday.com. Monday.com is a teamwork platform. It is really beautifully designed to manage pretty much any team, organization, or process online. It is super easy to use, and I must say very, very flexible. Monday.com just launched a contest to develop apps for the 100,000 teams that use it for their daily work. The Monday Apps Challenge is bringing developers around the world together to compete in order to build apps that can improve the way teams work together on the platform. And whether it's to help marketing, construction, sales, software developers, or anything in between, they are looking for out-of-the-box apps to include and definitely feature in their apps marketplace. And of course, there's something to win. Yes, because the prizes are insane. Check it out at monday.com slash data science. That's monday.com slash data science. Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm uh, Francesco. I will be your host for the next 30 minutes. And uh, um, I'm uh, hosting this podcast from the regular office of uh, Leuven in Belgium, where I'm based. And I'm very glad to have you on the show. Uh, For those who are consuming the podcast from uh, uh, the traditional channels, um, I'm currently uh, streaming on Twitch TV. Uh, There's this new channel, uh, twitch.tv slash coding gossip with one G. Uh, this is the place where I usually do stuff, usually coding, Python, Rust, depending on uh, the taste and uh, uh, the the requirements of the project. Um, and also my mood, I have to say. <laughs> but anyway, let's go back to the show. And um, in uh, this episode, as announced, I would like to uh, shine some light on... Uh, um, uh, federated learning. And so I would like to uh, break it down for, uh, I don't want to dumb it down for sure, but I want to break this concept uh, of federated learning and uh, uh, express uh, some opinions I have with respect to uh, a technology that is, yes, uh, very interesting and very, um, very powerful. But there are, of course, as many other technologies out there, uh, there are limitations uh, that I would like to uh, expand on in this show. So, back to the uh, subject, federated learning. Why is it important? Well, uh, federated learning is, uh, first of all, the attempt of federated learning is to uh, decentralize data. um, And instead of pooling this data, you know, in one place and make that place basically the critical point of any uh, machine learning system or um, algorithm, algorithmic pipeline that you are going to perform on such data. Once you pool data, there is a fundamental problem that is unavoidable. Uh, that is, whoever is maintaining that pool for you is also responsible, you know, is the custodian of this data. And the problem is that this data usually comes from different um, sources, uh, from different owners. And so every owner <clears throat> can participate with its own, uh, let's say, regulations, restrictions, limitations, 
um, confidentiality protocols and so on and so forth. And so once you pull these things into one place, that place becomes the single point of failure, uh, or not only from an engineering perspective, but also from a legal perspective. And the majority, if not all the companies and the, the large organizations that we uh, use their product of uh, today, uh, social networks, uh, microblogging platforms, uh, and many other services of, you know, now became of everyday life uh, usage, uh, in fact, use exactly this approach, which is centralizing the data of their users and uh, uh, perform uh, some operations and analytics and uh, analysis, statistical analysis, uh, research, and, and many other times even selling um, this data or selling a transformation of this data, transformed version of this data, or sending only the results of special uh, queries run on this data. Think about um, uh, the biggest social network we know. Uh, that's basically their business model. They have they collect data and then they allow advertisers to run uh, statistical analysis, in fact, in the form of queries and in the form of nice forms that they can fill in. Uh, in fact, they are um, uh, asking the data sets um, certain questions that they want the answer for. Um, now, what is federated learning and how can federated learning, um, what type of role this technology can play in a scenario like this one. Well, in as a matter of fact, federated learning allows multiple data owners to, uh, I quote, uh, pool this data without actually pooling this data. And so that's a very powerful technology that basically doesn't move the data, but moves the model. So think about, um, you know, Google, the biggest search engine that we know of, they have been using federated learning for years already. They just didn't call it like that. Uh, then they coined a new name and they called it federated learning. Uh, but in fact, they were using that uh, a long time ago uh, by running machine learning models on the typo corrector uh, to you know, keep improving and enhancing the capabilities of the typo corrector. Every time you, you type something, uh, if you make a mistake, there is some software that corrects what you type, uh, what you what you have typed, and uh, and that algorithm at the beginning it was you know a, a very general uh, piece of software provided by Google, but then it became a federated version of it, which is this model, this piece of software was was run running around all possible Android phones, um, and basically train locally on the edge the um, you know, improving the model on the edge on the characters and on the words uh, that were local with respect to that single phone. And so if I was typing something, uh, what I was typing was, you know, it's locally with respect to, uh, it's locally stored with respect to my own device, of course. And this piece of software was essentially, is essentially um, a training on my words and then sending back to uh, to Google, in fact, <clears throat> sending back the results or, well, the parameters of this new model that has improved eventually um, because it had access to my data. And now imagine this thing going around for another billion devices um, and then sending back to Google uh, a, always a, a better version of that model uh, uh, back.
So this is federated learning, in fact, uh, you know, applied to a very narrow case, uh, to a very specific um, application that is the, the keyboard type of corrector. Uh, and, uh, and that was basically uh, created by Google. Now, uh, in fact, you know, in this scenario, you can see that the data owners are all the users <clears throat> that are typing while um, Google is called in the jargon the coordinator uh, just because it's at the center of this you know it will it, it's the recipient of all these model updates that these billion devices are making uh, and it's also the point that decides the component in the network that decides who's gonna train the model next and how frequently and at what time of the day. So that's why it's called the coordinator because it coordinates this um, distributed and decentralized, I would say, computation across devices. So Google created a decentralized form of training. They called it federated learning. But in fact, um, that was not you know, something that Google created because it was a fancy technology. Uh, it's pretty clear that Google created this technology because it was um, one of the most efficient um, uh, possibilities, you know, solutions to solve uh, such a problem. And uh, doing it differently, uh, I think it would, be, it would have been uh, quite inefficient due to the fact that, you know, Google did not want to be the recipient of all the possible data uh, that people were typing. If you think from an engineering perspective, that would be a nightmare because, you know, you would uh, ask every single device to send data to Google, uh, which means burning the bandwidth and, and uh, probably consuming much more battery. Um, with respect to training on the edge, uh, probably, you know, under certain circumstances for the device uh, to, you know, to optimize the training and, for example, when the, the device is connected, is, is plugged into an uh, electricity plug or, you know, uh, choosing the right time, let's say, to train the model on, on the edge. So I think that uh, federated learning is um, it's something that really um, interested Google since the very beginning. Uh, but again, that was a necessity for Google, also because companies like, like Google uh, you know, are much less interested in um, avoiding pooling data for the sake of privacy and confidentiality. That's exactly, you know, what they do not do, in fact. Um, but they are using, they were using federated learning and they're still using federated learning because indeed that was, uh, from an engineering perspective, that was uh, an efficient solution. Um, if you think about, however, uh, being a data scientist and uh, training pretty much any model on data that uh, you can never get access to, well, that's, that's a, a nice story. That's kind of a dream for, for many data scientists. And, uh, and also in many other domains, uh, it's, it's a, a very appealing um, challenge that people would take. Um, if you think about, you know, in, if you wear the hat of the data scientist and say, I want a very powerful model and to train that model, I need to, uh, let's say, <clears throat> get access to my to, to data that I will never I will never get access to because of uh, GDPR regulations, confidentiality, or simply because I don't find people who are open to share their data with me. Well, in that case, federated learning can open uh, a 
a plethora of possibilities to uh, to you uh, who as a data scientist cannot get access to uh, to this to the data you need uh, at least not directly now this is cool for a data scientist uh, my question is is it cool for an organization maybe um, I think it depends you know uh, due to the fact that the uh, if you think about federated learning from a data perspective that's great you know um, but from an engineering perspective there is a massive effort that you need uh, that needs to take place um, due to the fact for example that you have well you need as i said a coordinator so you need to coordinate these nodes internally uh, and externally so in fact you want to do this um, if you are an organization for example you have to run a coordinator internally and then the coordinator has to ship these models uh, these machine learning models around all the other participants of the computation and doing that internally might be okay um, if you know I'm oversimplifying here in terms of engineering effort but um, if you are using federated learning in fact you know probably you would like to ship these models outside of the organization because that's where probably the most interesting data are um, don't forget that we uh, you know the the idea of federated learning is to uh, pool without pooling as many data as possible and uh, clearly one organization unless of course is an organization that is uh, extremely diverse and they have access to diverse data sets but in all other cases uh, you know in all other scenarios that's not the case and so an organization would like to get access to data that they usually do not collect or do not produce or uh, do not have and so they would like to coordinate these models outside of the organization. Now, when you go to the data engineering team or the IT department of any organization and you tell this story, they're going to look at you like an alien. <laughs> at least that's what they did with me uh, when I tried to uh, explain the powerful scenario they, they could be dealing with if they um, applied some sort of federated learning and they adopted a federated learning solution to their, um, let's call it machine learning pipelining. Um, the problem of many of these organizations I've been speaking to is that the engineering effort, especially when it goes to uh, coordinating nodes that are external to the organization, um, is insane. And that's kind of the uh, the biggest limitation of um, of federated learning approaches. Um, now, another thing is that um, um, models are shared among all participants uh, to the computation. And this means that um, um, if I am training a machine learning model and I have, let's say, 10 participants to the computation, which means that I have... Uh, uh, 10 data sets of the same format and the same characteristics and I'm just you know putting this model in a round robin fashion and asking node 1 uh, to train its part then go back then node 2 then go back then node 3 and so on until you know I exhaust all the participants of the computation now what happens now you know after uh, everybody's training its own part it's that everybody has access to that model uh, to the trained model and so the model until time t you know the, the current time is accessible to everyone to all the participants to the computation 
Again, this can be cool for someone. Uh, it can be a nightmare for someone else. Uh, think about competitors who, um, you know, competitors in a certain business, whatever, pharmaceutical, uh, finance, you name it. But imagine there are two competitors that are both uh, participants uh, to the same computation. Now, of course, they are improving each other, each other's model. But at the end of the day, both of them will have access to exactly the same model, which is, you know, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a feature. It's not a bug, of course. It's like that's exactly what federated learning can do. And that's wanted. Problem is that from a business perspective, maybe that's not really wanted. Um, because um, honestly, I don't know, I want to be realistic here. Um, if you are, if you know that your competitor has exactly the same weapon to tackle your same market than, as you, uh, then you have a problem. Well, you would not like to do that unless there is some sort of Nash equilibrium in place, uh, you know, economically, from an economic perspective, there is some sort of Nash equilibrium that whatever action uh, you take and your competitor takes, uh, it's, you know, you're not going to damage each other. But finding Nash equilibria in, uh, in uh, realistic cases is, um, is, another, is another story. So, course, I don't want to go digging to the, the Nash equilibrium problem. I just want to say that sometimes you would like to maintain that uh, technological advantage uh, with respect to your competitors. Um, and federated learning is clearly not the right technology for you to do so. Um, <clears throat> the other um, scenario, well, there is actually a scenario in which you can eventually protect uh, your model and uh, prevent uh, anybody from running away with your model at any point in time, because that's what can happen with uh, when you train a model in federated fashion. Now, how can you avoid that? Like, how can you avoid that uh, one of the 10 nodes participating to the computation is uh, dropping and uh, just running away with your, with your model parameters? Uh, which means that, okay, from that point in time, that node will probably no longer receive uh, an updated version of your of the model, but maybe the accuracy of the model it dropped with is uh, is good enough, um, and they just leave. <clears throat> well, if you want to protect the model, in fact, there is another technology that you might be interested in, uh, and that goes into the realm of uh, model encryption. So, what you want to do if you want to protect the model is clearly encrypt the weights of the model. So if you think about a, let's say, a neural network. Now you have a neural network that is essentially uh, composed of um, a certain number of parameters that you are training. And these parameters, when they are in clear, I can just use them and plug them in and do some dot products and put the model in inference mode and do my predictions. Right? However, if these parameters are encrypted, um, it means that that model might be spitting encrypted predictions. Uh, and so, in fact, that model would be uh, unusable. Uh, if I ran away with that model, I would not be capable of using uh, that model at all. So how do you solve the problem of encrypting model at the same time 
as you train the same model in, uh, in federated fashion? And the answer to that is what many researchers are working on, uh, which is called multi-party computation. Now, multi-party computation, or MPC, is an amazing technology that allows you to um, um, encrypt the model parameters or the data that you are training the model with. Uh, in fact, they are tr you are encrypting the so-called tensors when it comes to um, deep learning uh, training uh, with a particular scheme. And uh, when you encrypt this data with a particular scheme, which usually is a uh, uh, Shamir secret sharing or uh, Shamir scheme, um, Shamir, S-H-A-M-I-R, um, just so you know. And uh, when you encrypt these tensors with Shamir scheme, you in fact are creating um, uh, a number of shares, right? You are splitting your tensor in shares and you are distributing these shares across all the nodes that you would like to be involved in the computation of that encrypted state, right? So this means that if you uh, share nodes um, across multiple parties and share tensors across multiple parties, um, if you run away with just one share, you're not gonna be able to uh, reconstruct the, uh, the model parameters. And so in fact, uh, you, know, you will run away with nothing. To make it um, possible to use the model, you have to ask all the other nine nodes um, to share, to, to provide their shares with, uh, to you so that you can use that model. Now, this of course is, um, uh, this of course works. And uh, the problem is that uh, the slowdown that you usually have to accept um, when it comes to you know, um, uh, performance of the same model, it can be up to 100 times slower than a native neural network uh, training on a GPU or, or on a CPU as well. So this means that if you are, uh, you know, training a machine learning model that takes, or a neural network that takes usually three hours, uh, under MPC and federated learning, it can take up to 12, 15 days. <laughs> so is this acceptable? Uh, Maybe for some, um, for some others, probably not. Uh, for many others, definitely not. <laughs> so um, the problem of this is that um, if you want to, well, the first thing is that, again, the engineering effort that you need to, uh, to, to, to perform is incredible. Um, it's even more complicated than the federated learning um, uh, setting due to the fact that uh, the way you need to distribute your uh, node that calculate on uh, on the shares, uh, it has to be uh, done in a proper way because you want to avoid centralization. You want to avoid that um, you form a single model owner. You need to avoid that at any point in time, right? That's exactly what you what you do not want to happen. Having one uh, one single party that owns all the shares. <clears throat> and, and this means, you know, that's why it's called multi-party computation, because you want, it's, essential, it's an essential requirement that multiple parties are involved in the computation at any point in time. 
there are many other complications due to the algebra uh, of the of the scheme that I'm not going into the details, but um, uh, you know it can be a relatively complex piece uh, of software when you do these things, especially when you do these things on global networks, and then there is also the bandwidth problem. There is the uh, latency of the network, and so on and so forth. Um, to conclude on the MPC part, if you want to put your model in um, uh, in inference mode, for example, so once you have trained your model, you have trained your model parameters, <clears throat> you reached a certain um, plateau, so your accuracy is no longer improving, so that's fine, the model is ready to go in production. Now what happens is that you would like to place that model in, uh, let's say, inference mode, which means that you are no longer training the model, you're just using it on uh, unseen data uh, you know, to uh, perform predictions, right? That's called inference mode. Now, when you put um, an encrypted model in inference mode, it means that, you know, the model is encrypted, multiple parties will have to compute that prediction because they will have to contribute to that computation with their own shares, as they did during training. It's going to be much faster than training, of course, but still, if you're performing inference in real time, I doubt that's going to be possible with, uh, with an MPC setting. Not to mention, again, the engineering effort that you need um, to, you know, to, uh, to accept uh, in order to deploy uh, such systems, uh, regardless of how big the organization or the client or the end user is. Now, the, um, the other point I would like to uh, touch today is that um, there is a you know, there are very few cases that I've personally seen um, um, federated learning being you know in action or a, an MPC uh, scheme uh, working in in realistic scenarios. Uh, the fact that the technology is uh, is fancy and is uh, and it works from a mathematical or algebraic perspective doesn't mean that necessarily it's. Uh, realistically you know feasible for for the use cases that we deal with on a daily basis um and that's you know uh, to go back you know to go back a bit on the on the on the on the human factor of confidentiality and privacy i think that currently we have a bunch of technologies that can solve the problem of privacy and confidentiality but it's um i think it's more a human problem right uh, I think that technologies like federated learning and multi-party computation, and uh, uh, there is another one like homomorphic encryption, uh, these are all technologies that would succeed if people believe that decentralizing data is indeed a fundamental necessity and an essential right. Right? Until that time, uh, people will keep using the traditional um, uh, approaches of pooling data, of centralizing stuff, or they will accept that someone else is doing that for them. And uh, from an engineering perspective, of course, um, it will always be less efficient than uh, than the centralized version. So federated learning and, and MPC even more, of course, they're all uh, less efficient solutions with respect to just pooling the data uh, and train a model or do some uh, statistical uh, analysis on the pooled version of this data and then release the, the results, right? Uh, 
there is nothing in comparison that can provide um, a better um, um, performance than a centralized version of that. You know, that's a bit like uh, technologies like AI or like blockchain or like uh, uh, privacy. These are more uh, ideologies rather than uh, technological solutions. And uh, uh, I was reading very recently, AI is an ideology rather than a technology, uh, which makes sense. I mean, it's, uh, it's what people are willing to pay uh, in terms of performance, in terms of accuracy, in terms of latency, uh, in order to have certain requirements, um, for example, confidentiality and privacy. Until that period, until that moment, uh, there will not be, uh, I don't think there will be a very good chance for technologies like uh, federated learning to exist in a world in, in which people uh, do not believe that um, indeed decentralizing data is um, something that they should demand uh, rather than prefer. Um, I think that's it for today. I hope I made a decent job explaining what federated learning is and why we should pay attention to, to, to technologies like this one. <clears throat> I also want to renew the invitation on uh, uh, joining me on uh, the Discord channel. You will find the link in the show notes of this episode. Uh, usually, usual website is datascienceatome.com. And uh, what else? For the podcast uh, users or listeners, um, I am also on Twitch TV, uh, twitch.tv slash coding gossip, where uh, with one G, coding gossip with one G. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm usually on this channel uh, whenever I, I want to um, uh, do some streaming, <laughs> video streaming and code a bit and, uh, and explain concepts that otherwise uh, I cannot or I find it uh, much harder to explain uh, simply on a microphone. Uh, with this said, the uh, official website is always the same, datascienceatome.com, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.